And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Double Down with Breslow, where we cover all aspects of the business of sports betting. The business just keeps getting bigger and bigger and creating more and more positions uh, as it expands throughout the U.S. Uh, one of those is a guest we have on today, Joe Hatton, an independent sports betting analyst. A lot of people probably wanting to know exactly what that is. So we're going to have Joe on to explain to us what exactly he does in the industry. Joe, welcome to the program. Hey, Jim. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining our, our, our second L.A. guest in a row, which is awesome. Good to see L.A. representing when it comes to sports betting, even though technically it's not legal here, unless you're talking about fantasy sports and prize picks now, which is becoming uh, really big in California. Uh, but to, Joe, tell us what you do as a sports betting analyst. I use qualitative analysis to set essentially world opening lines for books predominantly in Latin America. Okay, so they're dependent on you to give them the line as opposed to just kind of uh, helping them assess other opening lines they're being given? You're, you're the guy they depend on? Between me, you, and who's ever listening, essentially, yes. Gotcha. So, um, and what sports are you doing that for for them? I mean, basically everything. Um, there's specialization when it comes to certain things that I have an expertise in, like hockey and international football, which is soccer to Americans. And then, you know, other things that obviously play into the hands of international markets like basketball and baseball as well. Gotcha. And how long have you been doing this? Well, this is going to be my 15th year, 13th year as like, you know, a prime source of income and responsibility. And how do you position yourself for that? Because, you know, it's a pretty important role. Whatever the line is set at initially is obviously critical to these books. If the, if the line is set wrong, they're going to get a ton of bets on the one side and uh, have a chance of really getting killed. So I'm sure, you know, you got to have a proven track record before a book wants to really work with you. So how do you even launch into this? I think for me, I, I can speak for like a lot of other people as well from the stories that I've heard, because there's a lot out there. But for me, it was on the other side of the equation. You know, I, I learned how to bet, I learned how to lose, and then I learned how to win. And as a result, typically in any instance, whether you're scouting players uh, and they're 12 years old and you have a gauge as a scout, uh, then as an executive, and then obviously as a coach and instructor, how to diagnose at a very early point what looks like it could be and where that takes someone um, and how that association can manifest. So from those books perspective, you know, as a better and anyone who loses might not see this until they start winning. And anyone who wins kind of already knows this, is that, and this is broadly true about life, the more you succeed, two things happen. People want to A, try to stop you, or B, try to understand what you're doing and either copy it if they're benefiting from it that way or limit it if they're hurting and suffering from it on the other side. So in my situation, it was a little bit of both. It was being squeezed off from being able to make money betting. And then the smart operators wanted to know how I was doing what I was doing because once you get to a certain point of consecutive rotations of winning and minimizing losing, they can start to benefit from that information, but only in a limited capacity if they don't know where that information is coming from. So just because I was winning doesn't mean it was my information. So in certain instances, those people were in positions of influence at those companies ran, gave me ultimatums. Basically, if I wanted to participate in their operations, meaning from a better perspective, then, you know, they either limit me, kick me out, or let me know where I'm getting my information because they can stand to benefit from it. And maybe if so, then we could have a different kind of relationship, which is kind of brings us to, you know, fast <laughs> forward to today. 
Yeah. Well, uh, what people don't, we, we did a little pre-interview for this, and it turns out your your story is a lot more fascinating than I thought because we didn't even talk about this. So we're, we're, I want to dig into this a little bit more as far as exactly how this went down because it's a pretty fascinating story. So you're basically saying that you were doing extremely well sports betting, right? And it came to a point between you and the sports book where there was a conversation. Right. And I think <laughs> once you succeed in anything, I mean, for a lot of people, you know, there reaches a point where you ask yourself, do I want to do this if there's a threshold, like if there's a ceiling? A lot of people out here in Hollywood, if I put out a great album and it sells a lot or I really enjoyed making it or it wins a lot of awards, do I just stop making music? Same thing with acting. I had reached a point where I had to kind of decide, do I want to keep trying to find places to bet because that was becoming increasingly hard to do, which then limits your ability to create income because you don't have as much money to invest in that capacity. And so it's a very kind of reflexive type decision and in, in circumstance. And so I, when positioned to have that choice made, do I want to involve myself from that capacity and give them, you know, the, at, the answer to their question, where was I getting the information? I mean, at first, I don't think they believed me. So sorry, what, what was your answer to the question as to where you're getting the information? I think the thing they expected was something else, somewhere else, someone else. And it was me. It was my information. It was my databases. It was my predictions. Um, and then my assessment of those basically differences between what I saw that was available and what I decided it should be. So to me, and by the that's way, essentially how markets are they, they didn't think that you were cheating. They just thought there was perhaps some particular sports handicapper you were getting it from. Yeah. Or often like, you know, the, the, the words that are often used out there is like, you know, group think <laughs> to be like coy about it. I mean, basically the idea is that someone somewhere has more information than they do. And if I was the one acquiring it somehow or being responsible for placing those wagers, then it, they were going to try and squeeze the information off at the source. And if they could benefit from it by just me giving them that information or the source of that information, then they could decide what they wanted to do with it. But when they found out it was me, they looked at it perhaps differently as opposed to why I said, oh, I'm getting it from this person or I'm getting it from that channel. Mm -hmm. So when you say you were having trouble finding places to bet on, explain that. So once there is kind of like a, a black book, if you will, of your records and your information, which is at least in my experience, commonly shared outside of America, fairly certain from what I've heard, it's common in America too, at every level. So whether you're talking about, you know, uh, inside a very small circle or even on a very broad circle, but one thing I've seen in the sports betting world, kind of like anywhere I've seen in the sports world, it's very insular in the network of people that are involved. At some point, there's a lot of recycling. People hold different positions in, in different companies or different groups but there's not a whole lot of turnover. So on the one hand, that's good. But on the other hand, it's limiting in the sense that if you get a, a rap as a winner, so to speak, you know, in other aspects of life, that could be rewarding. But in this instance, it's not because it's a, it's a competition. Um, you're basically trying to take their money and they're trying to take yours. So uh, while in a sense, it's kind of like unfixed in that there's a assumedly larger, always liquid pool of resources to tap into uh, from their side and, you know, from better pool, it's not as much as it would seem because of the limited kind of involvement of the people who do it. It's very cyclical. Mm -hmm. um, the, so. the other issue with besides finding places that will accept your bets is they all have max bets, right? Is that part of the problem, too, as far as your ability to make a, a, a ton of money? Right. So that's kind of where that whole capacity of being able to win comes in. One of the uh, things that to 
kind of underscore your point that has always existed is the knowledge that the larger limits exist when there's more anticipation of liquidity. So if there is at this point in time, an American football game on a Thursday night that is broadcast all over the world and is open to influential markets in the place in which it's you know emanating, which is more often than not the US, then there's so much liquidity across every market that they're willing to take larger wagers just to accommodate all of that fluidity, create more pool. Um, and in so doing, like they typically assess that as lower risk just because of the of liquidity. But with certain instances in certain sports, they will not do that because they feel they don't have the liquidity, which often comes from information, both on the better perspective and the books perspective. So kind of where my value to these operations really is best suited is they can raise their limits, which benefit them and benefit books, if they feel like their information, which historically has been gauged by the market, right? So in a lot of instances, lines originate wherever they originate, and then the market very quickly has an impact, and then there's not a lot of movement. But the fact that there is movement speaks to, in my opinion, a line that wasn't well positioned. Because it the way I view lines is lines shouldn't move. The market should look at that and have no idea what's a good bet. If they do, that's a very key indicator for people who don't know whatever their first instinct is. First instinct is if they had a track record of doing this and they tend to be right, then they're right. If they have a track record of doing this and they're wrong, then they're wrong. But either way, they fade their wrongness or follow their rightness. But the answer is usually not as confusing as it seems because a good line, an accurate line shouldn't move much. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get into a little bit about how you set those lines. But the scariest time for a, a sports book, I would imagine, would be as soon as they release a line, because if it's not an accurate line, you're going to get too much action on one side or the other. And now you want to you're going to have to move it, which they prefer not to do. I'm just curious if if I was a kind of a, a startup sports book, what I would do probably is say, you know what, I'm not going to be the first to release a line. I'm going to just chill and give it a couple hours, watch what happens at the other sports books first, and then take that. That seems to be the safer thing to do. Are there some sports books out there, as far as you know, that that, that do that? Yeah, all of them. Well, somebody's got to uh, start. <laughs> ex exactly. I was being cheeky, but basically the way that I serve the market gives everybody else an opportunity to do what you just insinuated. Sit back and take a breath. Because basically what happens is even when they do sit back and take a breath, Usually there's a 24 hour, in some cases, a full week of betting income, slow trickle wagers that are allowed to be placed, but at low limits, even for people that come in NFL Sunday could bet, sorry, my earpiece fell out, could bet a very substantial wager financially. That same person, even if unknown to the books and never bet there before, would be limited just by virtue of their feeling that they're not as market saturated and thus the information could that bet information the, the value of that wager could then impact the market so it's almost like this shared justification across the market that you've got maybe one and i'll be generous to four key players primarily international that will issue foundational lines it's like walking to somebody up on a car lot and say how much is that car 
and there is no basis for expectation. The person who is asking has no idea what it could or should cost. The person who's selling it has no idea what it could or should cost. And then somebody kind of walks out of the back room and is like, that should be $19,987. And then that person who's told that information decides what to sell the car at. Because that person who said that is not the person who's making that decision. It's the person who's basically selling that car. Yeah. So that's kind of like another understanding of this is like, well, I do set the numbers. The numbers I set don't always get released because that's not my, it's not my, it's not me running the book. You know what I mean? Um, so, so, so in other words, layer beyond that. right. So you're an analyst that they obviously trust and they're going to take that into consideration. So when they see that, Hey, you think this line should be in a football game minus seven. And these guys see that it was released minus six, that they might be what? more cautious or what would they do in that circumstance? It just gives them another data point, a significant one to consider. And keep in mind also, like at this point, we're running two simultaneous, basically algorithms and prediction models, mine and theirs. And theirs is based on theirs before I got there. And mine's based on mine before I got there. And, and both of them have evolved. So the key indicator for them is like a significant point of differentiation where I come in with the game should be at three and they said their system say six. And so there's not a ton of that, but you know, we're kind of using football as, as, as kind of that point, but where there is those conversations are lengthy because that's a key point of differentiation, five and a half, six, that's a less lengthy conversation than one where it seems like where is the difference in these numbers coming from or where can we get to that makes sense and that's kind of the genesis of those conversations mm. all right we got to take our break joe uh, but w when we come back we want to hear about your algorithm you know what how do you determine who uh, the likely winner is and what the proper spread is and so on so we're talking to joe hatton independent sports betting analyst on double down we'll be back right after this The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. And welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with Joe Hatton, independent sports betting analyst, talking about how the books originally set their lines um, and how they adjust them and the algorithms that are used, et cetera, to, to implement them. Uh, Joe's story is a fascinating one because he started on the other side as a as a better and ultimately then on went flipped to the other side and started work, went to the dark side and started working for the sports books themselves. So you said you've got algorithms. That's what you were using to place your bets. And you're saying that you're, that we're very successful. The sports books 
pick up on this and end up hiring you because they believe your algorithms are so good, right? Yeah, in essence. And I, I think people tend to overinflate like words like algorithm. I mean, literally, we're just talking about computer programs that produce information. So it's not as abstract as we're sitting there in some kind of, you know, laboratory working like uh, with stethoscopes and all kinds of, you know, wires and whatnot. I mean, we're literally just punching numbers into the computer and using qualitative analysis to produce some of those quantitative digits. But I'm, I'm surprised you're playing it down. Usually a guy in your stage would say, oh yeah, it's AI. I've invented AI when it comes to sports betting. Would you not use the term AI for what you're doing? No, I'd very much use it as uh, HI. You know, hi, it's human intelligence here. This is a human <laughs> punching in information to a computer and the computer is kind enough to, you know, give me a hand doing this. That's kind of how I look at it. But maybe right, that's, well, that's just inflating my ego. I don't know. Give us a glimpse inside your, your well, your mind initially, but then now your computer's mind. What what is what is punched into there so that when you insert the two teams, you get an outcome? So I have a background in hockey. I grew up playing hockey. I uh, was fortunate enough to work in minor pro hockey um, at an early age. And those relationships that I made with executives, coaches, players, not only persisted, but gave me a touchstone of understanding of professional sports, how they work, how people work, why they work. And those qualitative elements, I factor into my numbers. That, in my experience with number setting, is not historically factored in. Statistics, records, fabricated trends that come from those inputs Wow. I love that. I love, I have to have to interrupt. I love that term. Fab. What do you say? Fabricated records uh, or whatever? Fab, or, yeah. Fabricated uh, trends or results. Trends. Sorry. Fabricated trends. Because I, I love talking about this because yeah, my, and you could comment on this, but if you look back in time, if you, if you flip a coin a thousand times, there's going to be trends within that, right? The other type oh. of trends that will pop, come up is that, oh, in NFL football, a team playing on grass on the Sunday after they've had two losses against a team that, you know, is, is been on the road for three straight games, they're 18 and 13 against the spread. It's like, okay, yeah, you found some random trend from the past. It means nothing about the future and what's going to happen in the future, right? But man, you see those being touted all the time. Yeah. And I mean, here's the thing. I don't want to denigrate people's process because I know there's people watching this right now that are going to denigrate mine. That's fine. We can do that. I accept that. That's kind of life. It's like critiquing art or a record, an album, a film. Um, I don't believe causation facilitates correlation. So how something happened or why it happened doesn't necessarily, in my estimation, predict or desirably indicate that it will happen again. Like Annie Duke, the great poker player, wrote two amazing books, in my opinion. And one of the things she talks about is retrospective analysis is, is blind. Because we know the outcome, to your point. So being able to understand if a decision was made, why it was made, how it was made, and if it should be made again, the analysis in there should be concentrated on eliminating the understanding of the outcome from your evaluation of that thought process. If you're going to decide that, you know, did I make a safe or a risky wager? Did I make a well-advised or uninformed wager? Those are different questions than did I make a good or bad wager? Because often that is tethered to the result. If you win, that's a good bet in a lot of people's minds. If you lose, it's bad. And that's on either side. If you took a good bet or you took a bad bet. I take a lot from that point that Andy Duke makes. And I always try and bring that into my analysis 
of someone else's numbers, of my numbers, and even other people's process. Because to your point, in a vacuum, that is irrelevant. But if you told me that there were, in every instance of those games, of that trend, underneath that was the fact that those games involved quarterbacks who had just been drafted the year prior. Then maybe I would say there's something to that. Because to me, I qualitatively value that in a different way. But without that underlying information, in a vacuum, that means nothing to me. Right. Yeah. A a trend could be something interesting to look into to see if there's something to it. Right. But the trend itself kind of tells you nothing. Exactly. That's a great way of phrasing it. It's a starting point, not an end point. Yeah. So tell me what was it that you learned about professionals and professional sports that gave you some type of unique angle? And what can you share with us about that? I think people benefit from circumstances beyond their control. For me, I ended up in an organization that was having a tremendous amount of success kind of unexpectedly. They finished first in, I think, the league that year, definitely definitely their conference. And the coach got promoted. Um, they had a mix of young drafted players and, you know, veterans that were, you know, basically when you play a minor pro, whether that's in hockey, baseball, you know, now basketball basically has that uh, with, you know, they're under the premier top league they have another league you've got two kinds of primary people involved at every level coaches and and assistant coaches that have either been tethered to that minor pro league for quite some time and are just kind of either waiting for their chance to be at the next level or just pacing themselves in the sense that that's kind of where their ceiling is and they're kind of living in that mental space and trying to thrive in it and in some cases they're not And the same goes for players. You have players who are starting their careers in many cases. They're not physically or emotionally prepared to be at that next level. Um, And they're in a very developmental phase of that inclusion in that group. And subsequently, you've got older players that have kind of, again, reached their ceiling and they're not um, fully prepared to accept that and retire. Or they'll often be forced, if not chose, uh, choose to be in a more mentor role to the younger players. And then there's that, you know, outlier group in every category, whether you're talking about the most elite levels or the, you know, secondary and tertiary groups where they're kind of caught in between. And that is where I really focus on, because you can see that other two groups in either instance, but that group that's caught in between usually explains what makes a good team, right? Because you're always going to have in a family, someone who's, you know, hot and who's cold. You're always going to have somebody who wants to go left and somebody who wants to go right. But who's the one who drives the bus? It's rarely either one because those are the polar ends of either extreme. It's the workhorse, right? So those people in the middle, those are the ones who do the hard work. It's the video coach. It's those players who are in their third year. Are they going to get another contract? Are they going to get traded? If they become a free agent, is that going to affect them emotionally? Where are they in their personal lives? Are they settled? Are they frantic? Does their energy create a rift in the room? Are they the glue? And a lot of times that's hard to see from the outside, but I saw it up close and personal in the locker room with these players. And a lot of those players went on to win Stanley Cups um, at every level, players, coaches, and some of them didn't. And it's easy to say in retrospect that I could see that because I couldn't. But what I do know is looking back, I think about the qualities that I remember at the time. And I think to myself, it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that the players who won won and the players who elevated elevated and the coaches in the same vein and those who didn't didn't. And it's not an indictment on their character or their personality or their confidence in their abilities. It's just part and parcel of life. Mm-hmm. And I apply that 
you know, in zeros and ones. Does this NFL team have more zeros or more ones? And if they have more ones. So let me ask you, because it's a very interesting analysis, sounds like a relatively high level analysis of a team. Wouldn't that come into play more early in the season where, because you've seen things that others aren't seeing it, but by the time we get mid to late season, it's really got that meshing going on that you're talking about. We're already seeing it and the lines are already reflecting it. Yes and no. So everything you said is true to a point, but then you have to also like remind, you know, we remind ourselves as either on the book side or the better side that it's a fluid relationship. So it's it's very reflexive. If if I'm kind of trying to dodge you, then if I just keep doing the same thing, you're going to theoretically learn my moves and to either I'm going to adjust or you're going to adjust. And it's typically a dance. So if I'm a better and I look at a certain organization and I said, this organization is inept, they can't you know produce significant results. I don't want to be uh, involved on wagering with them. Well, as a other side of the bet maker where I want that action. I want someone to be involved on that side. I want to offer my car for an attractive price. I want someone to buy the car. So I can't just say like, Oh, you know, the car's only worth $13,000. Like if I have to sell it for 8,000, cause I want the car sold, I'm going to have to sell it for 8,000. So, you know, if there's a team and they should only be favored by three points, but no one even wants to bet on them when they're actually favored, then we, don't make them favorite. And there are very few people know that, know that, right? So most people assume that the lines are predicated on objectivity when in fact they're based on two levels of subjectivity, the ones who are doing the analysis and the analysis of the people making the bets. If the perception of the market is the market hates this team. Okay, well, how do we attract them? Well, we do that with price and we do that with media. We can't affect the media directly, but indirectly, if we set a line that allows the media to say, did you see this team is favored? How is that possible? Mm-hmm. They must know something we don't. Yeah, we know that you're going to talk about it and probably get people to bet on the wrong side. But it, or the side it, we want. It seems to me the information you're talking about is most valuable to a better in the position you used to be in. Because when you're advising the books, you could tell them, hey, look, guys, based on my analysis, this line is off. But at the end of the day, they need that line set where the market is. So if the market's off, the market's off. What does it matter if Joe's telling them that, you know what, guys, I really think it should have been two points higher? So one of the impacts that what I do has on the market is it keeps those numbers from moving significantly because most people sit back. Most people sit back and wait and they want to know who's going to raise their hand first in class. Who's going to go and embarrass themselves and to your point, take the most action. Well, the way a lot of international markets operate is they profile betters. They don't have someone like me. They basically have a bunch of people in a room who've never watched a game of basketball in their life. And their job is to watch a screen. And once those numbers are posted, the people who are routinely watching those numbers and waiting for them to be posted will start max wagering those numbers. And it's their job to assess the value of those wagers, right? And at times they'll come back to me and they'll say like, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of action on this side. What's your take on that? But more often than not, their job is to basically look at that and say, all right, do we move it in money or do we move it in price? You know, do we move the number or do we move the cost? Because that's another like faction of all this that's hardly ever discussed. Like, and there are ways to, to change this. And I think in, in the future it will be. But right now there is a 10 cent baseline, in some cases, five cents rarely, tax on every wager placed. And most people who are better familiar with the term, vig or vigorish, but essentially all that is the edge. It's the implied edge of 
no information. It's the impl- it's the implied edge of a coin toss where theoretically it could it land either way. But if you knew that you would get 10 cents if it landed heads and 11 cents if it landed tails, then you should never choose heads. So if either side has to pay 11 cents just to win 10, that in theory levels the playing field. But very quickly, what anyone who has seen this knows is that has to be decided. You can't really adjust heads or tails, right? You could put some tape on it or you could like dirty up a coin, but think of the face of the coin as the number. You can only do so much with the number because it's what it is. If there should, in theory, to my point, be an objective number. And it shouldn't move. It should be a heads or tails. It should be inflexible. But the reason numbers are inflexible is because it's a coin that gets muddied up by the market. And that price, is it minus 120 or is it plus 100? Assuming like that 20 cents of what they call straddle on either side, where you're trying to make it fair for the, for the bet taker to take those to take those bets. So the value to the books is predicated on, do I adjust price? Or do I adjust objective numbers? And more often than not, in the way the market kind of moves, really, is in price, less so in number. You will see a number, and we're kind of talking about spreads more so than money lines, which is a whole other nuanced mm-hmm. part of the industry. But in, in basic sense, assuming there's kind of like a fixed idea to a leveled playing field, a, a spread wager. And it works, by the way, with totals as well. Those numbers are essentially fixed. It's do you want to go over or under a number? Do you want to go this side or that side of a number? Money lines are a little confusing just to juxtapose that. But basically, you would say this number is plus seven or minus seven. In theory, that's one 10 on either side, meaning you have to bet 11 cents to win 10 cents either way. But more often than not, the thing that is posed posed to me is, do we move it to 109 and 111, mm-hmm. 108 and 112? Because then someone has to bet you know, $11.20 to win $10 or... $11 in 20 cents. Yeah, it's it, it's a more subtle compared to turn, changing it from seven to six and a half. It's a lot more subtle change to change it from 110 to 113 or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it seems to me if a book knew they could always set a perfect line, they probably could get away with charging instead of 110, charging 105, right? Because there's really two reasons for the 110, right? One of it is to make money, but the other is, hey, we need a buffer here because we're not positive this line is right. 100%. And that is why. In my opinion, once the market gets the information basically that the books have, it really reduces and virtually eliminates the necessity for those tax, those numbers, those five cents, those 10 cents. Yeah. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But uh, since you're a hockey expert, we can't let you go before you give us the winner of the Stanley Cup. Wow. The winner of the Stanley Cup. Well, I'm going to have to go with Vegas. Okay. I don't follow close enough to have an opinion of that, although I was at the Kings game uh, the other night for a, for a tough loss. But yeah, uh, well, you know what's uh, funny about that is uh, the Edmonton Oilers are a lot of people's pick to finally get over the proverbial hump that they've been trying to overcome for quite some time. And to me, is that the uh, Gretzky curse? Have they not won it since they traded Gretzky? No, they haven't. Um, actually, they did. I take that back. 1990. I remember because I I uh, I was a kid watching that, and uh, they had. They had traded Wayne Gretzky to the LA Kings, but Mark Messier and the group that was still there beat the Boston Bruins in a very uh, weird series that would never probably happen today. But they literally had game one remain incomplete because the power was lost at the Boston Garden. 
and the Bruins never really recovered from that and lost to Edmonton. So it it, it might be the slightly Gretzky-less curse, but... Uh, that, yeah, that's I, funny I, because I, that that's a part of the Gretzky story that a lot of people probably don't focus on because he never won one for the Kings, right? They went to the Stanley Cup, but they never won, right? right? Yeah, Usually a superstar yeah. player, like I look at LeBron. I'm not a big LeBron fan, but, you know, he's won. <laughs> at, okay, he's won at all three teams, right? He won for, he won for Miami, he won for Cleveland, he won for L.A., and Gretzky, who's, of course, considered the greatest of all time, which he was, but he, he never managed to win one for the Kings. I will say in defense of Wayne, who I, I think humbly would not say he's the greatest, although I think honestly would like to believe it. I think I and most people believe it. Uh, I think he would say Gordy a how. But um, and let's be honest, Gordy was ahead of his time in many senses. But the thing about hockey is and it, it's tethered me from the very beginning of having played it and followed it through. It's a team sport like no other. Uh, baseball, football, especially basketball, the elite, most el- superstar players will define the outcome of the game. Even the best goalies in the world, Martin Berdour, Patrick Waugh, they lost at the highest levels. That is just not a knock on hockey players. I mean, there are players that have played thousands of games and not gotten to the Stanley Cup. It is the hardest trophy in the world to win. It's the most revered trophy. I mean... It's the reason why, as great as Wayne was, his touchstones really come outside the game, like his ability to, there are hockey teams in Arizona and Los Angeles and Florida. Look what they just did to Boston. Those organizations don't exist, let alone thrive, if it wasn't for what Wayne did by coming to Los Angeles almost voluntarily. I mean, he was basically sold and was not happy about it, but made the best of it and literally impacted the game in so many ways. So I don't hold it against Wayne or Barry Melrose that they didn't get it done in L.A. because uh, he is. Yeah, you make a good point about goalies compared to a superstar basketball player, let's say. I I used to think that, oh, man, you get a hot goalie, you ride him all the way to, to, to the Stanley Cup. But if that were true, you would see superstar goalies winning three cups in a row or whatever, which you don't really see. But you see that in basketball. Michael Jordan, you see him winning. Kobe, you see him winning. LeBron, you see him winning. So... I think you're right. A superstar basketball player is is more important than a superstar goalie, right? Yeah, without question. Yeah. All right, but we got you down on Vegas. They're gonna get All right, it done. we're gonna we're gonna come back and find you on that. All right, good. I'll if, if you can find me, maybe I'll profit from that somehow, but probably <laughs> not. <laughs> okay, we got to leave it there, Joe. Thanks so much for joining the show, Joe Hatton, sports betting analyst. Uh, if people wanted to find you, place to reach out. Uh, I'm on Sharp Rank, so you could find me that way. Um, also lordhack.com you can just email me there okay cool and thank everybody for listening and watching we'll be back soon with another episode of double down with Presley. i want you to smash that like button <laughs> <laughs>